Today's sermon comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. That is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We play the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. There's often a very, very large difference between expectations and reality, isn't there? Let me give you an example. The expectation. As your little ones sit quietly at the kitchen table and hum along with Beethoven, they absorb their age-appropriate encyclopedias. Meanwhile, you recreate the map of the United States using homemade sugar cookies. And you think, ah, this is what life is all about. Now the reality. Your little darlings simultaneously shriek, mine, as they rip the latest Paw Patrol coloring book in two. Between loads of laundry, you smell smoke. You rush to the kitchen and find the slice and bake cookies burning in the oven. Fed up, you stand at the counter and remember the days when you thought you'd actually spend your life doing something worthwhile. Like being a brain surgeon by day and a lawyer for the poor by night. Expectations, reality, unmet expectations. 
If I were to ask you right now to fill a list, let's just call it a short list. Let's call it a list of five of unmet expectations in your life, you could fill it up pretty quickly. Life is full of unmet expectations. The question becomes, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that reality? How do you deal with unmet expectations? Well, the good news is you're not alone. In fact, John the Baptist in this passage is dealing with unmet expectations. And Jesus, as he responds to John and to the crowds, teaches us how to deal with unmet expectations, both how to understand them and how to overcome them. So first, to deal with unmet expectations, you have to understand unmet expectations. Verse two, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now we, we learned in Matthew chapter four that Herod had arrested John and put him in prison. John has been in prison for some period of time. Some think that maybe upwards of a year that John has been in prison. But clearly, now that he's sending questions to Jesus or the question to Jesus through his disciples, are you the one? John is beginning to question. He's beginning to have questions about Jesus. Now, this is surprising because just eight chapters earlier in Matthew chapter three, John confesses the greatness of Jesus. Matthew 3.11, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then when Jesus comes to John and asks John to baptize him, John essentially says, whoa, 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 time out. You're the great one. You're the great one. You should be baptizing me. So John confesses to Jesus being the great one, confesses to Jesus being great, and yet here we see that he begins to question Jesus' greatness. He questions whether Jesus was the Messiah this promised one who was prophesied in the Old Testament to come. You say, why? What happened? How did John go from saying, Jesus is the great one who I worship to, is this really the one? Well, the answer is found in verses four to five. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. 
Now, Jesus, in his response, quotes from two sections of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 35, five to six, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, describing what would happen when the Messiah comes. And the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And he quotes from Isaiah 61, verse one, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This is exactly what Jesus was doing. And John both saw it and heard about it. So back to the question, why is John questioning? Jesus is doing exactly what these prophets have said he would do as the Messiah. And he's doing it. And John sends the question, Jesus, are you the one? So why is he asking the question? Well, when Jesus quotes from both of these passages in Isaiah, he leaves something out on purpose. In Isaiah 35, Jesus doesn't quote from verse four which is the verse that immediately precedes verses five and six. Verse four says, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. And then Isaiah 61, Jesus does not quote from verse two, which immediately follows verse one that he had quoted from. Verse two says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. These Isaiah passages speak of blessing and judgment. When Jesus quotes from them, he leaves out the judgment. And John the Baptist's ministry was one of preaching repentance because of the coming judgment of God. And now sitting in prison, John saw no judgment being brought down on those who had immorally and unlawfully arrested him and put him in prison. He's not seen judgment brought down on those who had brought his ministry to a close and put him in jail. In John's mind, he's thinking, what kind of Messiah would let his forerunner languish in prison? Where is the judgment? Where is the justice? Jesus was bringing much blessing. He had healed many, but he wasn't bringing judgment. Unmet expectations of Jesus were causing John to ask questions. The problem is that John the Baptist's expectations of Jesus were wrong. They were wrong. By omitting these judgment verses in Isaiah 35 and 61 when he replied to John, 
he was teaching something critically important. And that is that in Jesus' first coming, judgment would be delayed. John 3.17, for God did not send his son into the world the first time to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Judgment delayed. And so John was scratching his head, wondering, is this really the Messiah? Because I'm watching injustice happen. I was unlawfully thrown in prison, falsely accused. Where's the judgment? This can't be the Messiah. Herod, violent man, had thrown him into prison. The fact that Jesus spoke those words from Isaiah and omitted the judgment verses that surrounded those passages was purposeful. Because Jesus' first coming, judgment would be delayed. Now in his first coming, judgment on Jesus was immediate on the cross. But judgment on, humil on humanity would be delayed until his second coming so that people could repent and turn to Jesus so their sins would be judged on Jesus, by Jesus, paid for by Jesus. And John had missed this. John should not have been surprised that he was in prison and that Herod was not being held accountable. John shouldn't have been surprised. You and I can have the same wrong expectations of Jesus and land in a very disappointed, frustrated, bitter, or angry place when it seems like evil is winning. When it seems like the righteous are suffering, not just seems, the righteous are suffering and the unrighteous are prospering. When it seems like sin and evil is not being dealt with, you and I can have, we can be in the same place as John, having these unmet expectations of Jesus that are wrong expectations of Jesus that he came in his first coming to save and that judgment would be delayed. Final judgment would be delayed until his second coming. The entire letter of 1 Peter is written to Christians who are suffering at the hands of the unrighteous who are prospering. It's a whole letter written to Christians. And in that, 1 Peter 4.12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Christ was treated unjustly. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised. That's expectation language. Expect the fiery trial. A while back, a friend of mine was speaking with a mother whose child 
had been diagnosed with something. It was sad, it was very discouraging. And in sharing this diagnosis, the mother said, I don't understand. I have been serving Jesus faithfully for years. There was this expectation that faithful service to Jesus, Jesus would somehow protect her from bad things happening. The scriptures consistently speak of just the opposite. That because we are faithfully serving Jesus and sacrificing for Jesus, bad things will happen. That's what Peter is saying. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial. Expect it. Embrace it. Expect to share in Christ's sufferings. In 2007, Matthew Murray shot and killed two people at the Youth with a Mission Training Center in Colorado, YWAM Mission. And after he shot and killed two, he ended up being killed himself by a security guard at a New Life Church that was nearby. And after the shootings, they found a letter in his car addressing God. And here was a piercing question that was found in this letter. Why didn't any changes occur or any love or help come when I accepted you as Lord and Savior? Unmet expectations. that stem from unhealthy expectations of Jesus and what he's doing. Now, what's the result when your expectations, wrong or unhealthy, when your expectations are not met, what happens? Verses 16 to 17. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. You become like a child who's never satisfied or it's never enough. Verses 18 to 19, for John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see what's happening there. John the Baptist comes and he's fasting. He's depriving himself in the name of repentance in the name of religion. And they say, whoa, this guy is super disciplined. He's scary disciplined. He's actually weird disciplined. I think this guy is a demon. Then Jesus comes along and does just the opposite. Jesus doesn't fast. Jesus is eating, he's drinking, he's partying with the sinners. And they say, oh my goodness, that man is completely undisciplined. He has no self-control. He's a drunk. Never satisfied, perpetually dissatisfied. That's where unmet expectations land. And that's where they eventually arrive. 
historian Daniel Burstyn suggests that Americans suffer from all too extravagant expectations. Listen to what he says. We expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars, which are spacious, luxurious cars, which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and merciful, active and reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed. For never has a people expected so much more than the world could offer. Now, how do you overcome unmet expectations? Jesus says in verse six, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed, meaning affirmed, loved, filled, satisfied the one not offended by me, meaning the one that's not tripped up or put off or frustrated by who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. In that one verse, Jesus says, you are not trapped. In your disappointment, your frustration, your bitterness, or your anger over unmet expectations. You're not trapped. There's a way out. You say, what is it? Well, Jesus is gonna tell us. After responding to John's disciples, he begins, he turns and begins to speak to the crowds. In verse seven. And what he does here is he's defending John. He does not want to think by John's question of Jesus, are you the one? He doesn't want the crowds to think that John was weak and fickle. His question didn't arise from personal weakness or failure. His question arised from misunderstanding of who Jesus was and what he was doing. And so he proceeds to defend John. He says, verse seven, John wasn't like a reed shaken by the wind, meaning that John wasn't unstable, being tossed back and forth by public opinion. Uh, Verse eight says he wasn't dressed in fine clothing or soft clothing, like in the king's houses. I think this was probably a jab at King Herod. But he said, listen, John wore camel's hair for clothing and a leather belt. It was rugged clothing. That's who John was. And then he says in verse nine, John was a prophet and even more than a prophet. So a prophet is a spokesperson for God. John was that, but he was more than that. He was actually the subject of prophecy, which verse 10 is a quote from Malachi chapter three, verse one. John wasn't just a spokesperson. He was the subject of prophecy. And that all lands in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. 
He does all this to say, John the Baptist is great. And he does all this build up to make his point at the end of verse 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was the greatest of prophets because he spoke most clearly to who Jesus was. But John was part of the old covenant. He was part of the old group of prophets that prophesied before Christ came and before the kingdom of heaven came with Christ. The least in the kingdom of heaven are normal people that would live after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. In other words, normal people post those events would be greater than John the Baptist because they would even point more clearly to who Jesus is than John the Baptist. And when we get to Matthew 14, we'll learn that John died before Jesus died, rose, ascended, and the Holy Spirit was poured out. In other words, John the Baptist died before the kingdom of heaven came with Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And so what Jesus is doing here is highlighting and drawing out the benefit and the privilege and the wonder of living in the kingdom of heaven and being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. John the Baptist only lived in the not yet. His entire life was lived in the not yet. And now Jesus says, the least in the kingdom of heaven, that's you and me, live in a very different time. We live in the already, but not yet. John didn't have that privilege. You and I do. That we live in the kingdom of heaven having already come in Jesus. It's here now. But it's not yet fully come and it won't yet fully come until Jesus' second coming. There was a little girl in England. Her name was Josie Caven. She was born profoundly deaf. And because of that, she had a childhood that was very difficult, felt very isolated, felt very alone. Until one Christmas season, when at the age of 12, she received cochlear implants. And she received those implants and it allowed her to hear. And the first song that she heard was Jingle Bells on the radio. Was Josie's hearing restored? The answer was yes. Was she hearing well immediately? Well, not exactly. Her mother said this. She's having to learn what each new sound is and what it means. She will ask, was that a door closing? She could hear, but she didn't know what sounds were. She had to learn what different sounds were and what they meant. 
Her hearing was already restored, but not yet completely restored. In the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ, you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven already, but not yet fully because the kingdom of heaven hasn't come yet fully, which means in this already but not yet, there's sin, there's injustice, there's trial, there's suffering. You say, what's this have to do with unmet expectations? Well, I want you to imagine if Josie, after she received her cochlear implants and she could hear again, when she heard that sound and she didn't know what it was, the door closing, whatever it may be, if she got really frustrated and she threw a fit and she said, I don't know what these sounds mean. I don't know what they mean. I thought these cochlear implants were supposed to restore my hearing. Mom, how come you understand what that sound means and I don't? It's not fair. You'd say, oh, Josie, you're in the already, but not yet. You're already hearing, but you're, now you're faced with the daily adventure of figuring out what these sounds are and what they mean. It's like you and me in the kingdom of heaven. We're citizens in the kingdom of heaven. John, the Baptist gets thrown in prison. You and I are citizens in the kingdom of heaven and then this sin continues to have its way with me. Or this trial, or this fiery trial hits. And we say, I don't get it. Already, but not yet. We're in the already, but the not yet. The already keeps you from becoming cynical and saying, I will there's no healing. Nothing's being made right. I'm still struggling with this sin. I still have this suffering. The already keeps you from becoming cynical because the kingdom of heaven is here. And the not yet, now listen to this. This is so important and this is what absolutely drills down on unmet expectations. The not yet of the kingdom of heaven keeps your longings from becoming unhealthy expectations. The answer is keep your longings. Keep desiring and longing for that day when whatever you're facing is gone. But don't let that longing become an unhealthy expectation, which will become an unmet expectation, which will lead to frustration anger, bitterness. The already, but the not yet. Some of the things we long for will not happen until Jesus returns. You overcome unmet expectations by embracing the already, but not yet. But to overcome unmet expectations, there's something else you have to embrace. It's verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence 
and the violent take it by force. From the days of John the Baptist, that means from the days of him preaching in the wilderness until now, now meaning Jesus healing people and doing his mighty works. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. What's that mean? Well, that phrase, there's a lot of debate as to the translation of that phrase. Uh, it, It all depends on verb tense. Depending on which verb tense you take, it can read the kingdom of heaven is being attacked or the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. Either way, the second phrase, the violent take it by force, confirms that the kingdom of heaven is under attack. And, And given the context of this discussion between John the Baptist and Jesus, I would side with a number of commentators that translate that sentence this way. The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent men are attacking it. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing. The blind are receiving their sight from Jesus. The deaf ears are being unstopped. The lame are are being healed. The dead are being raised. The kingdom was advancing. Jesus was healing people, but violent men are attacking it. The coming of the kingdom did not sweep away all opposition like John the Baptist expected. In fact, Herod, who was a violent man, had attacked John, had put him in prison, had arrested him. When the kingdom of heaven confronts the kingdom of this world, there is friction, there is agitation, there is tension, there is chaos, there is war, there is a battle. It's like a a freshwater river that's pouring out into the ocean and the ocean tide is coming in. And so the salt water and fresh water are colliding and the river's going out and the ocean's coming in. And in that you have this cauldron of churn and mix and waves and it's rough. And what Jesus is saying is that is where we live. We live in that between the first and second coming, the already, but the not yet. It's not full of peace and ease, and comfort. There is a churn going on. There is friction. There's a battle. There's a war. And Peter says, don't be surprised by it. Expect the fiery trial. Don't be surprised. Expectations. Earlier, I read part of the letter that Matthew Murray had written to God, and he left it in his car, and it was found after the shootings. He shot a number of people, but he shot and killed two at this YWAM training center, Tiffany Johnson and Philip Krause. It's back in 2007. After the shooting, they interviewed the director of that YWAM training center to have him explain you know, what happened. And this is what he said. Matthew was in the building for a half an hour talking with students. 
And then he asked to spend the night. Tiffany was called to the front because she handles hospitality. Normally, we would not have someone spend the night without knowing them or arranging ahead of time. After that, after that news was delivered, Matthew said, then this is what I've got for you. And he pulled out a gun and he began to shoot. Uh, He was in the doorway, his foot was in the doorway and he slipped back and the door ended up slamming shut and it automatically locked. And so he left. One of the trainees began to do CPR on Tiffany. She regained consciousness. She looked at her friend Holly, her fellow trainee Holly, and she said, is it bad? And Holly said, it's bad. And then Tiffany looked at Holly and another person who had been shot and she said this, We do this for Jesus, right guys? We do this for Jesus. You know what she was saying in that statement? This is what happens, right? This can happen when the the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world collide. Like something horrific and tragic like this can happen, right? We're serving Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Now, you may not be staring down the barrel of a gun, but what battle are you staring down? What battle are you facing that maybe has you asking the question of John the Baptist, Jesus, are you really the one? Or what tension or what agitation or what friction or what heartache has you in the cauldron that you're experiencing? Jesus says, embrace it. Don't run from it. Embrace it, expect it. Don't be surprised. You're living in the already, but the not yet. The battle doesn't mean that you failed or that there's defeat, quite the contrary. The battle is evidence that there's victory. The battle's evidence that there isn't already. And the battle's evidence that there's a not yet as well. Both are true at the same time. Embrace the already, but not yet. Embrace the fiery trial. Jesus is with you. He's with you in it. Don't be surprised. Embrace it because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is advancing forcefully in the face of opposition. Let's pray. No, Father, it can be so disorienting living in this this world that is so severely broken And Father, it puts us in situations that are beyond fathomable. That we just want to give up 
or we want to begin questioning, is Jesus really the Messiah? Oh, Father, in these moments that we all face in the tension, in the friction, in the chaos, in the war, in the battle, in the fear, the heartache, would you remind us of the already but not yet that the kingdom of heaven has come in Jesus and that Jesus is with us. And yet, would you help us also to embrace the not yet, that we would long for the day when we're free from all of this, but don't let, Father, our longings turn into unhealthy expectations. Father, you know how difficult things can get because you put on flesh. And thank you that Jesus, you sympathize with our weaknesses, you sympathize with our fiery trials. And for those that are here that are maybe in the midst of trial that has them at the end of their rope, Jesus, draw near. Draw near to them as you are. And Father, would you now fill our hearts as we respond with singing? Singing does something to our souls. It ministers to our souls as we bring our praises and our worship to you. And so in the midst of the fiery trial, in the midst of the chaos, we lift our voices to you because our response will be to praise you who are good and who have done something about the bad in Jesus and are doing something in the future to come back and get rid of it once and for all. Father, thank you. We worship you. In Christ's name. Amen.